Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Um, one of the things, tonight what I've decided to do is just hit on some miscellaneous things that may or may not have fit into the other messages. And then we're going to have um, as long a question and answer time as people want to have. I, I want to be able to answer your questions on this subject. How many of you, you, you deal with people on this subject? People, you, you end up in conversations, you talk with them. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very important conversation to have. Um, while I was preaching in Logan uh, last week, the, the church secretary there is a lady who grew up in Catholicism. Um, she got saved, married the pastor's son there at the church, and now he's the assistant pastor. So she's the church secretary. He's the assistant pastor. And the only thing she's ever known as far as a Christian is the King James Bible. How many of you are like that? The only Bible you've ever known growing up is the King James Bible. Well, look at that. Hold, hold your hands up again. Everybody look around. Turn around. I want you, I want you all you all, all to see this. So why have I been doing this lesson? Um, you know, some of you saying, we don't know. I don't, we're, we're just here. We, we got to sit. You yell at us if we're not here. Just... But um, she read a book by Mickey Carter called Things That Are Different. Things That Are Different. Mickey Carter pastors the Landmark Baptist Church in Haines City, Florida. They have Landmark Baptist College. They use our Y Baptist book there in the college. But he wrote a book. It's just a helpful little book on the issue. But what it did was it, it talked about the Geneva Bible and some of these other Bibles that would be in the same line of, as manuscripts, same line of manuscripts as our King James Bible. But she said that it shook her faith. It really caused her a lot of trouble. Because if it's from the... She, here was her question. If it's from the same manuscripts as ours, why isn't it as good as the King James Bible then? So if we're saying that the King James Bible is God's preserved word in the English language, we would say that it is superior to the Geneva Bible, to the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible, Matthew's Coverdale, at all. We would say that it's better than all of those. Well, if it's from the same line of manuscripts, why would you say that? Why would we say that? Well, two things to consider. Any of those Bibles are far superior to the modern translations. Let's, let's lay that groundwork. So why, and I'm asking this rhetorically, I'm going to answer it. Why would uh, the, the, the Bibles in our land of manuscripts, all of those, even the Bishop's Bible, which was hastily translated and, and, and had errors in the translation, why would we say that that's better than the modern translations? Because the modern translations come from a text that intentionally removed truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have a word here and there in some of these previous editions of the English Bible that may have been translated incorrectly or, as we'll see in a minute, simply not as clearly, not as effectively. It was still the word of God. It's just it wasn't as clear as what we have. That's a, there's a big difference between that and removing um, for the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. Right? Or from that's a big difference than removing for God so loved the world that uh, 
he gave his only begotten son and changed that to his one and only son. There's a huge difference there. Um, one of the things that I looked into was John 1.1. 1, 1. And you know our Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Look at John 1. Before we Keep your place in Luke. But go to John 1. And I looked in the... Um, I looked in the Bishop's Bible, Tyndale, Matthews, Coverdale, and the Great Bible, I believe. Those are the ones. Okay, so we have, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of those Bibles had that almost word for word. No effective change at all. It might have changed, um, In the beginning was the Word, um, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. There might have been a, a, a word order change, something like that. But it, it read just like ours does. But listen to the way it would have, they would have translated verse 2. It was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it, and without it was not anything made that was made. That's the way that most of those Bibles translated, because they were thinking of God as an entity. And you say, well, that's horrible. Well, not really. Remember what the angel said to Mary, this holy thing, speaking about Jesus Christ, this holy thing. Um, but how many of you see that the King James Bible is, is so much clearer? Why is that? Why is it? Uh, so what we've done so far is we've answered the question, why would a Geneva Bible or, or a Tyndale Matthews Bible be superior to an NIV because the NIV came from a corrupt line of manuscripts where truth about the Lord Jesus Christ was removed, truth about salvation, truth about the Trinity, truth about central doctrines. The, the truth was removed from those. These other translations were accurate translations, not as excellent as the King James, but they were accurate translations. But the Word of God was being purified seven times. So what they were doing was they would translate a phrase and then they would see how that phrase had worked out. And then they would, then they would look at the next translation and the next translation and the next translation. And that's why so much of um, Tyndale was carried through. Because he colloquially, and I'll explain that, colloquially he did such a good job of translating phrases and thoughts in a way that would resonate with English-speaking people. Okay? And by colloquially, I mean the way that, that English-speaking people, the way that our brains work, the way that we receive information, Tyndale did a tremendous job of translating that way. Um, but what the King James translators were doing was they understood that I think 60 or 70% of people in England at that point were illiterate. They couldn't read. So they had to write a translation. They had to produce a translation that was melodic because they were very musical people and they could hear the music of it. They could remember the music of it. They could sing it. They could hum it. They could think about it while they're walking behind the plow. And so if you look, I don't know if this, if mine has it. Let me look here. Yes, 
Yours may have it. Look all the way at the beginning of your Bible where it says the Holy Bible. And yours ought to have some kind of title page like this. Mine says the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special command. So just that right there, it tells you how the Bible was translated. Isn't that right? It tells you how it was translated. And I'll tell you this, often when people are mocking the King James position, um, they'll ask this question. So do you think that missionaries ought to translate from the King James? That's, that's what they'll ask me. Because we believe that God preserved His Word in the English language in the King James Bible. And that in order to develop a text, a, an underlying text, like the King James was translated from, would be very difficult today. And so then what they, what they say is they think that they're asking you something you've never heard before. You know, they always have a smug look whenever they say, ask me a question like that. So do you think that, the, that a missionary ought to translate from the King James then? And my answer is always no. They ought to translate the same way the King James was translated. How was it translated? Out of the original tongues and with the former translations, diligently compared and revised. That's how every translation ought to be done. That's how every translation ought to be made. Um, so then, look at what it says underneath that. Appointed by His Majesty, or by His Majesty's special command, appointed to be read in churches. How many of you have that in the front of your Bible? Appointed to be read in churches. It's very important. That was part of the original uh, introduction to your Bible. Because that was a significant part of the translation of the King James Bible. It had to flow off the tongue. It had to be beautiful. They were very, they were very concerned with the beauty, with the way it sounded, which is why they would read it out loud as a part of the translation process. And that's why when you go back to John 1, look at what the Bible says. Uh, John 1 and look at what it says in verse um, 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's beautiful. It just flows. There's a, there's a meter and a rhyme to the writing of the Bible. Um, the book of Job is considered the most beautifully and elegantly written piece of literature in the world. The book of Job. Um, I, I have a DVD on the making of the King James Bible. And um, Ward Allen, the, the scholar that I was speaking of this morning, is interviewed uh, as one of the, the scholars. And he he's, teaches at Auburn. He has that that southern way of talking. It's a very slow and elegant way of speaking. And so he was talking about uh, Job. And he said the idea of the way that the book of Job was translated is it was to be read and meditated on. And, he's, and, and he cited a couple of passages. And he said, so one day I was walking by the pond thinking about in the woods by a pond, thinking about this phrase from the book of Job. And he quoted it. And it came to me what it meant. I realized what it meant. 
That's what the King James Bible does. How many of you, you've just been working or thinking, verses, Scripture comes to mind, and all of a sudden, just as you're doing something else, an understanding of that text comes to you. Has that ever happened? Yeah. That doesn't happen with the other translations of the Bible. That is something unique to the, the King James Bible because of the, the type of phraseology in the English, because of the, 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 again, the rhyme and the meter, the flow of it. It's a, if you look at verse 1 again of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. If you read any of the other translations of the Bible, it doesn't sound like that. The beauty and the structure of it. And now let me say this. Uh, I just, this morning, I, I like to just Google uh, different things in relation to the Bible. And I can't remember what phrase I Googled, but it brought up this Church of England celebration of the King James Bible and what they were saying about it the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And they said, um, unmatched in beauty, but less accurate than modern translations. Okay? So now, this is where I need to address this unmatched in beauty. The unmatched in beauty is part of the excellence of the translation. Because that makes it memorable. It makes it scripture. When you hear the Bible, you immediately know it's not something else. You immediately know that it is the Word of God. One of the mistakes, one of the, one of the tools of Satan in this area of study is people have come to believe that that's just because that's what Old English sounded like. And when people make movies of that period of time, they have people speak as if they were speaking the Bible. If you read something or if you watch a movie about the pilgrims, it sounds like they're speaking King James English. That's not the way that they would have spoken. This was specific. That language, and I said it this morning, I said it last week, but I want to say it in this context. The language of the King James Bible is not Elizabethan, is, is not Elizabethan English. It's biblical English. And it is far superior to the text of any modern Bible. All right, so now, let's talk about language. Um, Dr. Ree was speaking to me after the service and was talking about translation and how in certain cultures, things can't be translated. Um, someone was telling me recently about being in, I think it was New Guinea, and there was no word for, I can't remember what it was, something like a sacrificial lamb. The, even the concept of a sacrificial lamb, there was nothing in the language to explain that to the people. Isn't that amazing? So they had to come up with a way to put that in language that the people would under, so the people would understand it. It's an amazing, it's an amazing problem that you have with language. That's why it is such a blessing that you were born in an English-speaking place or you came to live in an English-speaking place. English is a very unique language. Um, English has the widest vocabulary of any, uh, of any language. Did you know that? 
We have the widest vocabulary of any language. It's the most expressive of any language. Some of that goes to the Latin and, and German that underlies our language. Um, it really is beautiful. It's a beautiful language. We need to be thankful for it. Uh, go to Acts chapter 17. We'll make it to Luke, don't worry. Acts chapter 17. Get Acts 17 and Genesis 11. Acts 17 and Genesis 11. All right, let's start reading in Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill... And said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too religious. So I just wanted to remind you of what the modern Bibles put there. You are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Isn't that awesome? They had all these gods, but they didn't know the one true God. Here, let me tell you about the one you don't know. That, that was a brilliant tool, and of course, that was God-inspired. Look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times the four-appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. Okay? Here's what we need to understand. God puts you where He puts you so that you could find Him. Is that what the Bible says? God had you born where you were born so you could find Him. Let me say this. There are certain people groups. Well, let's, let's go to Genesis 11. You'll understand this a little bit better. So how many of you see that God had you placed where you were placed? The times and the bounds of your habitation. So that when you looked for him, you could find him. Is that what, is that what Acts 17 says? Now check this out. And this is what the Bible scholars all miss. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built, with the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Okay, so the first thing that I want you to see from this text is God is not for globalism. God's not for big cities. How many of you agree with God? 
<laughs> He's not. Where, where, where is the wickedness in our country primarily? Why? They, 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 anything they want to do, they can do. There's anonymity in the big cities. They can do what they want. All right? So verse 7. Go to, now let me ask you this. Sorry, ADD moments. Let me just, was God worried that their tower was going to make it to heaven and overthrow him? You know, people believe that. They really do. They think that man could become God, and so that's why he did the Tower of Babel. All right? So now, so we understand that that was not a problem. Verse 7. Go to. Let us go down, and that's the Trinity, right? Let us go down and there. Let's go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. What happened? God, at this point, created the languages. Now, you'll, if you go to college and you study any kind of literature, you make that your major, you're gonna, you'll probably have to take a history of language and they'll talk to you about all the different ways that language developed, you know, from the woman screaming while the man dragged her out of the cave by her hair and, you know, the hieroglyphics and the cave drawings. And they'll talk to you about the development of language. And everything they tell you is wrong. Where did language begin? From God. God began language. Is that right? Wonder, what language do you think they were speaking in the Garden of Eden? God's language. What language was that? It's a good question, isn't it? What language were they speaking? English. I don't know. <laughs> now, I'm just going to guess. I'm going to guess Hebrew. But I don't know. Do you see how limited our knowledge is? And people get so arrogant about language. They get so arrogant about it. And so the idea is if God gave the Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, remember the Old Testament in Hebrew, in Daniel you had some Aramaic, and then um, some Aramaic citations in the New Testament, but primarily Greek. So Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, scattering of Aramaic. God knows more languages than that. I want you to see something. Look with me in uh, Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 28. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Other tongues. Look with me. Keep your place here. Go to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. And look at verse uh, 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now look what the Bible says. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people. Stammering lips and another tongue. 
When the Bible's talking about a tongue, that's a language. With another language, he will speak to his people. Do you know what God's promising there? Initially, he was promising the day of Pentecost. Okay? Initially, he's promising the day of Pentecost. Let's go back to Acts 2 and look at what happened. Verse 4 again. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. That's what Isaiah 28 had promised, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed. You see, you know what, what surprised people? God spoke all of these languages. The Holy Spirit of God spoke all of these languages. Boy, how can he do that? Because he invented them. Now, this is very important. This isn't just a scattered thought. This is very important. This is what is missing in the translation discussion. God is fully aware of languages. God developed, there's no doubt that God developed the Hebrew language to communicate His truth. That God developed the Greek language to communicate His truth. But then He also developed the Syrian language and the old Latin language to communicate His truth and then brought it all together in the Queen of Languages, English, which became the, na the language of the world, the entire world. If you have a King James Bible, you can minister in almost every country in the world. Oh, why? Because God ordained that. He ordered it and ordained it. The other thing that we see is where the blessing of God comes. When people receive and magnify the word of God, God blesses their culture. Is that clear? That's why every Roman Catholic nation is poor. Uh, when you look at the European Union, what's happening in the European Union? It's about to crash. Why? Because of the pigs. The pigs. Uh, those, not the people. That's the acronym for the countries. Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. What do all those countries have in common? Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism. The United States of America, when it was founded, one of the primary things they wanted to deal with was to keep Roman Catholics out. How many of you have never heard that? Anyone ever heard of Samuel Morris, Morse Code? How many have heard of Samuel Morris? He wrote entire books on the importance of keeping Roman Catholicism out of the United States. How many of you have never heard that? It's because the history of our country is not taught. Why were they wanting to keep the popish doctrines out? Because where popish uh, cultures are, there's not freedom. There's not liberty. The work ethic is not there. It's a matriarchal society as opposed to a man-led society. Every one of them. Every one of them. And that's why they don't prosper. Maybe for a short period of time, they don't prosper. Do you know what's interesting? Spanish. Had a, had, a, had a complete word of God, an accurate, complete word of God, beautifully done before we did. Why didn't the Spanish-speaking countries become the missionary-leading countries in the world? Because of Roman Catholicism. 
You see, where the English-speaking people were, it was not Roman Catholicism. Now, where did the Reformation start primarily? Germany, right? Did Germany send out all the missionaries around the world? No. Why not? It's a Roman Catholic country. How many of you would generally think of Germany as being Lutheran? Portions of it are. And I think, I think that, that Lutheran might even be the state religion. But that Roman Catholic influence is so strong there that it can't be overcome. So this concept of God developing languages and creating the ability to communicate, it's all based around the Word of God. Do you know that, that that Koine Greek, the only reason that Koine Greek is, is used at all anymore is because of the Bible? It's not even spoken. No one speaks the Greek of the Bible. No one speaks it. It's a dead language. English is a living language. You can communicate the Word of God to people. And it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing tool. Um, let's go to Luke 19. I'll finish that one point, and then we'll take questions. <clears throat> How many of you are not in my Wednesday night Bible study? Would you raise your hand? Good. Those of you in the Wednesday night Bible study will have seen this, um, but I want to demonstrate this. This is some of the information that I showed the lady who asked, why is the King James Bible superior to, uh, say, the Tyndale or the, the Geneva Bible? Because of the consistency and accuracy of the translation. Okay, so let's, let's look at an example of this. Luke chapter 19, verse 30, uh, 37 for the context. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty, <clears throat> for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. We're going to come back to that. Keep note of verse 39. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these stones should hold their peace, this, the, or that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I heard this guy say that when he takes tours to uh, Israel, when he's on the Mount of Olives, he tells the people to reach down and pick up a rock, put it in their pocket, take it with them, and use that as their souvenir. And so when they have this rock on the on their desk or on the table at home, somebody asks what it is. You, you can just tell them it's one of the rocks that didn't cry out. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Look at what it says in verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day. See that? Would you mark that? In this thy day. In this thy day. The things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. So what is Jesus Christ doing? Jesus Christ is holding them accountable for something. This was their day, and they missed it. Is that right? Now look at what he says about it. You missed your day. Verse 43. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and... Keep thee in on every side. We would call that a siege, and that's what's coming. And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Look at what it says. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. 
This is very important. He told them that they missed their day and the time of their visitation. All right? Hold your place in Luke. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. So this is God through Gabriel giving an announcement to the children of Israel, to the Jews. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. All right? So until the coming of the Prince, until the coming of um, the Messiah is going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks from the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem. All right? That takes place. We're not going to take the time to look there, but that takes place in Nehemiah chapter 2. So we have the date from Nehemiah chapter 2. These, in the context, these are 69 weeks of years. So in, in 490 years, exactly to the day the Messiah is going to come. So if you go back to the day that he pronounced, that, that uh, the king pronounced the building of the walls in Jerusalem, Nehemiah goes back to build the walls from the day of that decree to the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was to the day 490 years. To the day. They missed the day. They missed the time of the Messiah. He held them accountable for those words. Now, go back to Luke 19 and get Psalm 118. Luke 19, verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. All right? Go back to Psalm 118. Look at verse 21. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. So that's obviously speaking of who? Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is, what's it say? The day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you have heard that verse before? What's the context? Let's read on. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. What were they saying when Jesus Christ was riding in in the triumphal entry? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What were they doing? They were quoting, they were reciting Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice 
and be glad in it. Why should we rejoice in that day? Because it's the day that the Messiah came. The Messiah is here. Look, the Messiah is here. This is our day. This is the time of our visitation. They missed it. He was holding them accountable for every word of God. And the Pharisees knew every word of God. That's why when the people started saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they said, rebuke your disciples. You're not the Messiah. Was he the Messiah? Yeah. He held them accountable, didn't he? Jerusalem's destroyed. The, the, the times of the Gentiles now come in because the time of their visitation came and went. How many of you can see that clearly from the Bible? That's the beauty of your King James Bible. The, the clarity of this is the day. You missed the day of your visitation. That connection is there in your King James Bible. It's not there in modern translations. It's not as consistent in the earlier English translations. We, we, could, we could take one word or phrase and trace it through your entire Bible. That is the significance of this King James translation. That's why it's superior to any of the six English translations that were compared to bring us this one. 